So belonging is a huge marketing tool. It's why people wear swooshes or they wear the three stripes of Adidas. They're showing they are part of a tribe. And this is how I belong. This is how I show up in the world. Oh, you're an Adidas person too? Me too. This is how we fit together. Really, really powerful tool. Welcome to the Grounded Content Podcast, where tactical and effective meets grounded and honest in advertising, marketing, and content creation. I'm your host, Marian Abrams. Today's guest is Rebecca Heiss. At its core, effective marketing is about finding a way to get people to take an action, to follow your podcast, to hear your important message, to buy your product, read your book, or donate to your cause. Rebecca Heiss is an evolutionary biologist who studies evolutionary psychology. That means she's immersed in the age-old, baked-in behavioral triggers that we carry deep within ourselves. And she's just published a book called Instinct. Our brains excel at making split-second decisions based on instinct. Today, she and I talk about the instinctual drivers of behavior that she discusses in her book. We look at each of these and how they apply to the world of marketing. They include the drive for survival, for procreation, for variety, and belonging. I think you're going to find this conversation so valuable. One last thing before we start. If you do like the show, please tell one friend about it. And I'll be back at the end to talk a little more. We have a great conversation planned, but tell me a little bit about the book and kind of why you got into this topic. Sure. The book Instinct is outlines of seven different instincts that we all have that most of us don't even recognize that we're behaving from most of the time. So the idea is to break down human behavior into these categories of survival and sex and information gathering. We can go through each of those chapters, but to start to recognize how our instincts are really driving our behaviors and influencing us in ways that we don't even recognize we're being manipulated by, essentially, and to start to intervene in them so that everybody can live a little more fearlessly. I just love the principle behind this because, I mean, obviously, one of the things that I think is so interesting for people who are building a brand or selling a product or whatever it is, is how do you motivate your customer or potential customer to actually do something? And if you don't understand kind of basics of behavior, you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, fear-based selling, as you've said before, is, is huge. And a lot of that has an evolutionary basis. We pay attention to the things that we're afraid of the most because again, if we didn't pay attention to that, those negative things are what can kill us. You know, the positive things, they're like nice upsides, right? Like I found a bushel of berries. Yay. You know, that's nice. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to pay attention to the tiger. If the tiger is lurking near that bushel of berries, that upside is not worth the risk. And so we do tend to focus on these negative fear-based kind of incentives. So let's start with, I think your first chapter or one of the first topics is survival. Yeah. So tell me how that influences our behavior. Sure. I mean, survival is paramount. It is the number one thing that our brain is concerned with. And I would actually go further and say that our brain is kind of obsessed with survival because what's the point of life if you're not surviving? So your brain really is constantly focused on fear. What can kill us? And what that does is when you think about how our brains evolve, 
Our brains evolved in a very scary, dangerous, sparse environment, that sort of ancestral environment that we talk about 200,000 years ago or so. And so our brains are evolved for that dangerous, scary space. They're constantly on the lookout for the tiger lurking or for our neighbor who's going to come over and kill us for our resources. And so it's really heightened to the idea of, oh God, this world is really dangerous and scary. The problem is we don't actually live in that world anymore. We live in a world where, sure, there are some scary things out there, but for the most part, we're pretty privileged. We're living in a world where the tiger on the corner is not going to just come out and kill us. It is a cell phone going off. It is an email coming in. But our brain doesn't actually recognize the difference between a perceived and a real threat. So our perceived threat is like, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so stressed out. And our brain is literally thinking we're going to die as a result of that. So it's separating now and recognizing, wait, every single stressor doesn't mean imminent danger, right? It doesn't mean an actual tiger is lurking and saying some of these tigers are actually in cages. So can you give an example of like, I mean, I can think of a million of how this has been abused by marketers or media. Oh, sure. Sports drinks, for example, right? You have to quench your thirst. Well, okay, hang on. I have a water fountain there. I have access to clean water everywhere we go. And it's playing on this sort of imminent threat to, if you don't have something immediately with electrolytes and with all of this extra added stuff, like, well, okay, yeah, that's important, I'm sure. But our daily environment for most of us provides us with more than enough protein, more than enough water. Like we're fine with the stuff we have, but it's playing to that heightened sense of, if I don't have it, I could die. Oh gosh. So is there, I mean, and this isn't your area of expertise at all, but I'm going to push you into it a little bit. Go for it. Is there an ethical use of it? I mean, so for example, say you say, get your ticket today, they're going to sell out soon. And people are afraid they're going to lose the tickets. But really, you know that you have plenty of extra. Right. Is there an ethical use of this kind of fear tactic? Wow, that's a that's a big question. I'm a huge fan of being very upfront about it. Because the fun thing about your brain is that you can know that these are fear-based techniques. You can know that. And it doesn't make any difference. They still work, even though you know it works. Yeah. Your brain is still going, oh, but even though, you know, they still have extra tickets, but today it could be because our fear of loss is so huge. That's why it is being two times as strong as any kind of fear of of getting something, of gaining something. And so even knowing, because we all know, you know, sale ends today, but if you go in tomorrow and you ask for the 10%, you're probably going to get it off, right? We know that. And yet- our brains still tell us otherwise. So I'd say, yeah, use it. Absolutely. Be ethical, be upfront about it and tell people straight up, hey, guess what? We're going to activate your survival obsessed brain. Oh, I like Ready? that. Yeah, Here right. we go. That's brilliant. Kind of a fun, yeah. Fun approach. yeah. Well, because you talk about in some of the interviews I've heard and in your book, you talk about this idea that we have this drive is so strong, but it's based on inappropriate fears. So we don't fear the things that are really dangerous to us, but we have such a visceral reaction to these things that evolutionarily were relevant, but today are not. Yeah. Hamburger, classic example. That should be terrifying to any of us. We should be looking at a hamburger and fries and going, ah, because again, the number one thing that kills us is heart disease today. But our brain doesn't light up for that. Our brain says, oh yeah, fats and sugars. I need that, right? I got to layer that down to survive this cold, harsh world that we know. No, we don't need this anymore. But again, survival triggered brain says, I have to have all the resources. If I don't have that, oh my gosh, I might die. I might not look as good. I may be rejected. (sighs) Terrifying, right? 
So at the end of the interview, I really want to get into the important part in a way which you talk about, which is how we aren't prisoner to these instincts. Yeah. But right now, let's keep working through yeah, the sure. instincts. So the next one, we've all seen the bikini chick selling stuff, right? Sex <laughs> as a sales technique. How does sex work in terms of, I mean, obviously, but how does that work evolutionarily? Why is that such a driver? Yeah, sex sales. I mean, I tell people that brain science really isn't nearly as hard as these neurologists make it out to be because our brains literally operate on sex and survival, right? Once we have survival figured out, we go to, oh, yeah, how can I procreate? And so the idea with selling with sex is it's fear-based as well, actually, because it's showing you this, let's say the bikini model. One of two things is happening. If I'm looking at that as a heterosexual female, I'm looking at that female and I'm going, oh, I don't look like her. I need that product so I can look like her so that I can attract the mates because I know she's beautiful, right? So I better get that skinny diet thing that I can drink and now I'll look like her. So it's selling to my insecurities and my fears as well. If you're a man, if you're a heterosexual man looking at that, you're going, oh yeah, I should get that because if I buy this, then I can show my value. I can show how much I have to spend. I have all these resources. Men, heterosexual men are saying, oh, look at all these resources I have because that's what we value men for. We value them for their money, for their status. And so luxury brands like, well, I won't name any brands here, but luxury brands are selling and targeting specifically men because what they want is for them to wear their watches to say, hey, look at all this. Let me show you how valuable I am as a mate. And if you don't have that, well, your competitors will. So. Again, this is one of these things that is so ingrained that even when we know it's happening, you're saying we're kind of not powerless against, are we powerless against it? Well, you're powerless against it if you don't recognize it, right? Awareness is always the first step. And I think so frequently we have been so culturally ingrained, so biologically ingrained that we don't notice it. And it takes actually pulling back and saying, whoa, 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 my instincts are kicking in here. What is happening? To even recognize that you're being marketed to in that way. Right. So the picture of the guy next to the hot girl in the bikini is basically really triggering these deep behavioral areas in the brain that are powerful. And they're telling that guy that you need to buy this thing to be valuable, right? Or to procreate. And they're telling that woman who sees it, like, you're going to lose out and you will not be a valuable contributor to your species, basically, if you don't do these things, right? And we know that's not true, but they work. Yeah. So this is the fun part with, not the fun part, it's actually a devastating part when you look at genders and the roles that we play in today's society. So again, men, I'm not saying that this is the only reason that you're valuable, but ancestrally, we valued you for your strength, your size, your ability to control and hunt and bring back resources. And so today we still see these patterns emerging. We see, actually, this is a fun statistic. If you look at the U.S. population as a whole, only 14.5% of men are over six foot. But among Fortune 500 CEOs, that number leaps to 58%. So we're still putting people into positions of power, potentially for the wrong reasons, for the wrong indicator. And we're marketing the same way, right? You need to be strong. You need to be powerful. You need to show your worth by showing your status, by showing your money. And then for females, we don't value female status. We value female beauty because beauty is an indicator of youth. Two follow-ups on this one specifically. Okay, 
One is, can this change? Because I think about roles, for example, in our household, we don't have traditional male-female roles. I'm the primary working person. My husband's the primary caregiver. Like, So does that mean that our children who grow up with that role model will have a different perception? Or is this stuff like so deep that, in other words, can these perceptions change the unconscious biases and kind of drives that we have? Yeah, it's a yes and. Certainly your kids will have a, a different perspective than kids at a quote unquote traditional male breadwinning household, right? That said, this is the age old argument of is it biology or is it the culture? And the answer is, yeah, it's both, right? It's a mixed bag. I think what you're seeing today is biology has played its way out for hundreds of thousands of years. And, you know, it wasn't until the 90s that women were wearing pants in the Senate, you know, like this is just sort of a new era. And our brains haven't caught up to the fact that, oh, yeah, women can be breadwinners, of course. Men are excellent caretakers, of course. Right? These roles aren't set in stone biologically. There's no determinism there with our genes. But it will take some time for us to flip that culture and also recognize that culturally as well. And then another one with how our sort of society is transforming is how do these, if you know the answer, how do these drives in terms of imaging and what they compel us to do How does that work for people that are not heterosexual or not traditionally gendered? Yeah, so great question. Well, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of research because we haven't been paying attention, honestly, and we haven't had the most inclusive environments in academia. There is some research and a lot of the same drives are true for men and women who identify as homosexual. In terms of people who don't identify as cisgendered, We just don't have that information right now, at least to my awareness. I need to dive back into the literature, but it hasn't been studied extensively enough to really give you a clean answer there, unfortunately. Interesting. So that's a new place to explore. Okay. So this is like, we could dig into each one of these, which I guess is why you wrote a book and have a chapter (laughs) on all of them, right? a lot. (laughs) Right. Okay. So the next one is variety. So how does that exhibit itself in terms of, you know, media and messaging, marketing? This is so much fun. So take a look down your grocery aisle, right? This is one of my favorite places to go. Do you really need 50 different options for your pasta sauce, right? And the answer is no, of course not. But to your brain, yes. And actually we need 60. So our brain craves variety. And this was helpful for our ancestors who needed to eat a very varied diet or who needed to mate with lots of different potential partners because you'd mix the genes better that way. In today's society, there's some issues here, right? Or, you know, you're looking for the next best thing in your job search. Or when it comes to marketing, the more variety we put out, the more people believe they need that product. Explain that to me. I'm trying to understand what that looks like. Well, let's look at a Starbucks menu. Right. But there's arguably what, like 500 combinations at least for how you can order your coffee. What that does is it keeps me going back to Starbucks, despite the fact I might only get the same thing every time. That's what I was going to ask is like, I go, so I, for example, with the Starbucks example, if I go there, I always get the same thing. So explain that to me, how the variety works to trigger or what it's triggering. Sure. Our brain is actually looking for options. So the more options we have, our brains think the happier we'll be. The irony there is it's actually the opposite. So if you give somebody, for example, a no refund policy, there's no refunds. You get what you get. You have this option or that option. There's two choices. We think, oh no, I don't want to do that. I want the Starbucks menu. I want to be able to select and I want to be able to hand it back if I don't like it. And we end up less happy, 
less satisfied with our choices, but our brains insist that that's not the case. So we're constantly looking to add to our variety, more variety, more variety, more variety. And in fact, it's making us less and less happy. So that's an interesting ethical question for you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, the other part of this that I'm wondering about is I know that a lot of people who are really into like the funnel process and how the psychology works in terms of motivating people to take an action, they actually say like, don't give them any choices. Like give them a landing page and there's only one thing you can click and there's only one way in and they'll make that decision. So how's that different or how does that work? Yeah. So that's actually a really good counter example to going to the grocery store. You don't want to go to the grocery store where there's only one option, but you do want to go to the landing page where there's only one option. And I think that plays into a bit of our information overload, which is a whole nother chapter, but it is easier for us to make a decision when there's two or when there's just one. I just have to click this one thing. It certainly makes the decisions easier, but our brain won't like it as much. Our brain is like, I want all the things, but okay, if this is all you're giving me. Now you've funneled them down through that process. I was going to say, maybe it's like the internet is the grocery store and the page is the product. Yeah, it's the Starbucks coffee that I always get. It's the same one each time. And it's fascinating because you would think we would understand our biology well enough to say, actually, I'm going to be happier if I just have the same thing. I just want the same thing every time. And interestingly, the companies that are doing that, that are limiting choices on their menus, like Five Guys, Five Guys, there's very few options. They are killing it, right? They're absolutely skyrocketing. Now, is that because they're getting more repeat customers because people don't have the regret? Really? So interesting. Because now one of two things is happening. Either... I'm going back to Starbucks because I'm missing something. Like I could get better. I could do better. Or I'm going back on Bumble, right? I just had a great date, but what else is next? What are my other options? So either we're having this loss bias of saying, I might be missing something, which keeps us coming Mm, back. Which is like the social media thing, right? That fear of missing out or fear of like, oh gosh, there should be maybe a better job out there. That's the variety that keeps us coming back. But it also keeps us really unhappy, Versus what you're saying, you know, five guys or I'm going to Starbucks for this one thing or for the option for the one thing, which actually does make us happier and more satisfied. I guess the hope is, right, if you're an ethical marketer, the ultimate marketing tool is to have happy customers. There it is. There it is. And I think ultimately we will start to see more limited menus, more limited choices because our brains are so overloaded right now. God, there are so many variables and avenues that we can go down (laughs) with this stuff. But I'm going to keep going. All right. So next one is belonging. So belonging is a huge fundamental need for humans. We feel like if we're not a part of a community, if we're not part of a tribe, our brains kick into that survival mode. They're like, we're going to die. Because again, you got kicked out of your tribe back in the day. You died. You didn't make it out there all by yourself. So belonging is a huge marketing tool. It's why people wear swooshes or they wear the three stripes of Adidas. They're showing they are part of a tribe. And this is how I belong. This is how I show up in the world. Oh, you're an Adidas person too? Me too. This is how we fit together. Really, really powerful tool. And what's kind of the dark side of that? The dark side of that is actually the next chapter, which is if you have a tribe where you belong, that means there's another tribe where the others don't. And creating a strong internal tribe is a really positive thing, but leaving the door open for others to come in 
is important because otherwise what you end up with is the fear of the other. You know, Adidas is great. Yeah, but we hate those Nike people. Well, wait a second. Why? Well, because they're not like us. And you can apply this to any brand, any color, any sex, any gender, any, right? And that's where we start to see this fear of people who think different from us, who look different from us, who act different from us. Because again, for our brains, the other were typically dangerous. They weren't coming over to borrow a cup of sugar. They were going to steal all of our resources and we may not make it through the winter if they were a different tribe. So I think the dark side of belonging is making sure that everybody belongs. Everybody is welcome here. Just because you have a different swoosh or you have a different whatever, you're still welcome in the tribe. So does that work from a marketing point of view? I mean, like, can you belong if everybody belongs? So again, this goes back to basic evolutionary psychology. So this is a fun one. There's really two ways to market things, right? As far as I understand, I'm not the marketing expert, but my very limited but you're, marketing you understand like behavioral triggers. Right. It's either this is really rare. Very few people in the world have this. Come and get it. Or everybody has this. If you don't have it, you got to get it. And so two very different techniques here. And the scarcity one, the one is like, this is very limited. What they found was if they did that, that commercial for the scarce thing during a scary movie or something that was like fear inducing, people didn't want it because they don't want to stand out, right? They don't want to be the one that's like, <laughs> they clean their so head interesting, up, right? But if they did the, hey, everybody has this during a scary movie, they were like, yes, I need that. Yeah, because I need to be part of my tribe to protect me. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. So placement of that is key to triggering these different, I need to belong to something. Wait, I want to stand out and show how different I am. It depends on the context. Yeah. So did they find a time when the I need to be special kind of ads worked? Yeah. Are you ready for it? Yeah. Sex. That's when it matters, right? Because I need to stand out in order to show myself my value that's bigger than all of my other rivals. Like, look at how special I am. And so that's where you see a lot of the luxury brands or the diamonds, like one in a million. So you're watching a romance movie or you're watching even like something a little sexier. And that's when those ads about being special. This is a unique opportunity. Only one other person in the world has this. Watch for it. Yep. Wow. So cool. So interesting. All right. So we got survival. We got variety. Fear of other. Okay. So info gathering. Information gathering. So the way our brains operate, we like stories. We love stories. In fact, it's how we remember things. We don't remember facts. It was just a really hard thing for a scientist who has become a public speaker or professional speaker to wrap her head around. Because I'm like, look at all these facts. Here, have some facts. Nobody cares. No, because because it's not how our brain processes information, right? We're getting bombarded by, ready for a fact, 400 billion bits of information every single second. But if you don't put that into context, if you don't create a story around it, it doesn't mean anything. So I can give you all the facts about why my product is so great, or I can tell you the story about how when this little girl put on these shoes... And she walked to school and she was protected from the, the, whatever it was, you know, protected from the thorns that were tearing at her feet. And, you know, I, I can still, you still need to work on the story part. You're- yeah, I, I'm really, I'm obviously not a marketer, right? But you could create this whole storyline about why these shoes, these shoes saved this little girl's life. You will not forget that, but you will forget me telling you, well, these shoes are better than those shoes because of X, Y, and Z. Doesn't matter. 
our brains are built for story. And so we will correlate things that are not even really related because we're like, oh, but those shoes, they're actually life-saving. What? Yeah, that girl, you know, with walking to school with those shoes on, it saved our life. Oh, okay. Now we've equated this really positive thing with this brand, right? With this identity. And our brains will take that in and hold on to that information. We may not remember why we love those shoes so much, but when we elicit that emotion, it layers down the memory differently. Yeah. So talk about that. I've had a couple people say that intense emotion are one of the best ways to kind of drive an action or a memory or purchase or whatever that thing is. And I was asking like any emotion? Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be a little careful here because this is going back to your ethics on fear. Yeah. Any emotion. If I can put you into a state of fear of absolute terror, you are going to remember every single second. Because think about this. Where were you on 9-11? You can pull that up. You can think about the taste in your mouth when you heard about that. You know what you were smelling. You know where you were on the road when you were driving. You can remember all those details. Why? Because your brain is going, this is a moment I need to remember. I'm in a state of fear. There's lots going on. I need to layer down all this information. And so your brain records in detail everything that's going on. Same thing when you fall in love, right? Exact same emotions. Those emotions actually elicit hormones that say, oh, this is an important moment layer down the information. So yeah, you can create associations very powerfully with emotion. What about sadness? So I think probably the most effective commercial I've ever seen, Sarah McLaughlin, SPCA. You sing in the arms of the angel and you just show pictures of abused animals. I won't ever forget it. Wow. Right? Layers down that like, oh, I need a connection here. I need to do something because what I'm seeing is something I need to fix in my community. The sense of belonging. I have an animal. Oh gosh, I can't imagine that animal being in pain. There it is. So Rebecca, we covered so much information here. It's kind of overwhelming. Could you just review each of those behavioral triggers at kind of like a quick wrap up? Sure. Yeah. I mean, survival. That's the big one. That's the mother load, right? Is if you're going to sell something, the first thing that you can trigger is this fear of survival of, or of not surviving. Sex. How are you standing out above the crowd? How are you showing up with your sign gender, whatever that is? And how does that play into how you're standing out for your potential partner? Variety. Our brains are constantly triggered to seek more variety, more variety. So in what ways are you marketing that you're actually taking advantage of the brain's trigger to say, what's next? What's next? Greener pastures. Belonging. So a sense of belonging. How do we facilitate community? How do we bring people together so that they feel like they're part of a tribe without, and then this is the warning, the second bit, which is a fear of the other, the people that think different or look different or act different. And then doing all of this without being overloaded with information, which is our brains are constantly seeking new information. And unfortunately, they can't keep up and process it all. So the best way that we can provide information is through a story. So now we kind of went through very briefly. And by the way, this book is great. I highly recommend it. If you want to dig deeper, you can go and look at that. But we've laid down all these kind of drivers of behavior. And now is the important part. You kind of have a theory that we can protect ourselves from these. How do we do that? Yeah, I actually just recently started calling it the fearless theory. And the fearless theory is actually about living more. We can live more when we fear less. And here's how we do it. We have to add to our lives. Remember that add, right? We're adding awareness. What am I feeling right now? Okay, 
That's our first thing because our brain is going to elicit strong, powerful reactions, emotions, and we are oblivious most of the time to those feelings. But if I'm under stress, my heart might be beating fast, right? I might be sweating a little bit. Oh, I'm going to become aware. Great. The second thing we have to do is then define, okay, why am I feeling this? What fear am I in? Am I fearful of that other person that doesn't look like me or act like me? Am I fearful because all the horns are honking at me? Am I fearful because I may not look good in front of my potential mate? What fear am I operating from? And when we define that fear, what I'm asking people to do is not just recognize what instinct we're operating from, but also to say, wait, is this an actual tiger? Is this a real life-threatening situation that I have to react to immediately? And if the answer is yes, you're already reacting, right? You're already doing what you're supposed to do. Your body's in that state of stress, fight, flight, freeze. If it's not a tiger, if it's like a caged tiger, like, oh gosh, the email is stressing me out. Okay. Now we've defined it. So we've become aware that we're having a reaction. We've defined it that it's probably a caged tiger. It's something that we can actually handle. And now all that's left is to do, take an action, decide and do. We're not responsible for our first internal reaction. You can never control having that immediate like, "Ah!" but you can control your first response. So now it's what am I going to actively consciously decide to do in this moment? Rather than letting my instincts pull me in a particular way, what am I consciously going to do now, now that I'm aware of it? So that's the basics. (laughs) That's great. So here's a challenge for you. Okay. I'm going to ask you to, to pretend to be a marketer now. How would you design, using these behavioral ideas, how would you design an advertising campaign for broccoli? Um. Okay. I would first start with a story, which we've already established is not my strong suit. Okay. But start with a story about almost like maybe a Popeye-like character. And this Popeye-like character we're going to have as, and again, this is where ethics come into play because I can choose right now to say, all right, should I make this traditional Popeye strong male character eating the spinach and promote that? Or can I flip a switch? And this is actually another, I'm glad you asked this question because now I'm going to go down another rabbit hole. Creating a surprise, creating a moment of, oh, I didn't see that coming is actually just as powerful because you're creating that emotion of, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, what just happened there? It was a bait and switch. So now this Popeye, you know, eating his spinach isn't going to get it, but the broccoli girl. The broccoli girl, the the young girl that now develops this superhuman strength and speed and we start to value her for her status, that's a little surprising. You know, that's a little different. We're showing all these models who are eating their broccoli and they're all thin. And then we show the woman eating her broccoli who's a powerful CEO. I don't know. I'm obviously not working on this story exactly, but I would create story. I'd make sure that you have a strong emotional element in it whether it is surprise, whether it is horror. And then I'd actually walk through exactly what you'd be experiencing as a narrator. I would walk through, hey, right now, as you're watching this girl grow up, you might experience, because it would be fun for me to see that reaction. But again, that's why I'm not a marketer and I'm a scientist. (laughs) You would actually elicit the emotions and the behavioral triggers, but you would call them out as you were doing it because that would make it sort of ethical at the same time, but they would still work. Yeah. I mean, I would because I want that data. (laughs) I'm not saying that's the most effective marketing technique. 
I mean, you're asking the right questions here, the really powerful questions. And I think if I'm going to make this more appropriate for your podcast, what I would say, hinge on surprise. I think the more you can create something that's counterintuitive, that actually goes against some of these instincts. You may be following the story pattern along that you expect, you expect, you expect. Everything is fitting. And then there's that punch at the end that switches things up and says, whoa, actually, we're not following this exact same storyline. You've created an element of surprise. You've actually added in some ethics. (laughs) I love this idea that you can drive behavior using these evolutionary behavioral triggers, but that you could actually harness those in a way that would maybe break stereotypes or move society or behavior or community in a positive way and still effectively sell your product. So by using surprise, you're actually kind of calling attention to all of these things that are our triggers. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost a got you moment. And when it catches me, I'm going, oh, I was playing right in it. I was hook, line, and sinker ready to buy your product. And then you did that. Now I have to have it. You know, it is that counterintuitive flip. You You said it much better than I did. Okay. So we've talked about all these triggers and behaviors. And then we've taken it that next step to say, okay, how can you kind of insulate yourself from them, which is so important. But how would you wrap up all this? We've presented so much information. How would you kind of tie it all up with a bow? I think that is a lot easier said than done. And so I'll tell you my own experience with marketing and how I've tried to recognize and be aware of my own instincts when I'm actually writing this book. So I have this idea of what I want the cover to look like and the subtitle and none of it relates to my audience, which we know is the first thing, right? And so my marketers are like, no, it needs to be red. The color needs to be red. What color did you want it to be? Well, I'm not sure, but not red. (laughs) But in the back of my head, I'm going, I don't want red. And then I have this little trigger and I'm like, yeah, but red is an aposematic color, which means danger, which means we pay attention to it. So then of course I'm like, but you got to add yellow too, because that's the other secondary aposematic color. And what does yellow mean? What does yellow do? So red, yellow, orange, and black, those are kind of dangerous colors, right? They, They draw you in you're like, oh, so immediately here I am, I'm using fear. And then the subtitle, rewire your brain with science backed solutions. Now, I want science-backed solutions, 100%, to increase productivity and achieve success. And I'm sitting here going, well, yes, that's true. That's what the book is about. And it's also about unplugging your brain with science-backed solutions to enjoy however productive you are and forget about success and just be. But that doesn't sell books, right? We want to achieve something. We want to do something. And so whether you want to achieve something and do something or achieve something and do something by unplugging and sitting and enjoying. I hope, (laughs) I hope that I've created an element in this book that, that allows everybody to find some way to step back, see themselves in context of a biological being and make some conscious changes that will help you live happier, whatever that means for you. It's the essential question, right? And this is the thing is we do need to market. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, if you have a message like you do in your book and you don't do the things to get it into people's hands, you're not doing them a service, right? So my thing is, how do you do it effectively? And I don't know the answers, but I'm always asking, where are the lines? And I just want it to be part of the conversation. 
Oh, I so love the question you're asking. It's so again, professional speaker, a lot of my stuff is here, right? I have to be the face of things and social media is huge. And what my social media manager continues to say is back more selfies, please more selfies. And I was like, this is not what I'm selling. I'm not selling me. I'm not selling my face. And he's like, actually, when I think about evolutionary psychology, actually, yeah, you are. Ouch. That stinks. So to your point, how do we use marketing to capture attention and then start to elicit change, start to bump in a little surprise, bump in a little, oh, are you consciously aware of why you clicked on that photo? Interesting. All right. Well, here, here's a takeaway for you. Again, I think that you're asking all the right questions and I'm grateful that you are. Well, thank you so much. Any parting remarks before we close up? No, I mean, I, I'm just really grateful that you're, I truly am. I'm, I'm grateful that you're asking these questions. I think they're important questions to be asking. And I hope I gave some insights. I'll be curious to hear more. And, and I hope you get to, to the bottom of all these questions because we can all use it. There is no bottom. Thank you for listening. I know there's a lot you could be doing with your time, and I want to make sure that this is valuable for you. Have you used any of these principles? Do you plan to? I've set up a form at madmotion.com slash grounded podcast, and I really would like to hear. You can also find me at madmotion on most social media platforms. Drop me a note there if it's easier. As we wrap up, I want to thank my guest this week, Rebecca Heiss. I recommend you buy her book, and I'll have a link to it on my website and in the show notes. And thank you to Chris Sarnock for editing this and many other episodes. See you next time.